Close has a strong claim to be the daddy of science communication. A hugely respected and pioneering particle physicist, Frank C.V. takes in many of the world's most important places for breakthroughs in physics. Stanford, CERN, Rutherford Appleton Lab, and now as Emeritus Professor at the University of Oxford. But it is as a writer and popularizer of scientific ideas that Frank is best known. I've been extraordinarily privileged to get to know Frank as one of the founders of the Atom Science Festival, and such is the breadth of his experience and activities, this interview is split into two episodes. This episode, part one, focuses on science communication, how he, accidentally, became a science writer in the first place, the story behind his groundbreaking 1993 Royal Institution Christmas lecture, The Cosmic Onion, and finally as head of communications at CERN, when he realised that effectively explaining big science to a wider world was critical in getting popular and political support for all science. Along the way, we explore how close the UK came to pulling out of CERN in the 1980s, how to create an explosion in your bare hands, and the secret to great research. It's all about asking the right questions, apparently. Let's start with Cosmic Onion, because in the course of interviewing people with podcasts and we've worked together on on the Atom Science Festival, but more than one person has said that the Cosmic Onion, i.e. Royal Institution Christmas Lecture that you gave in 1993, was a a defining moment or certainly an inspiration that they remember growing up, which contributed to their involvement in science. This is something that's happened every single year since 1825, um, this annual series of lectures but not on television but not on television no obviously <laughs> yes, not yeah. but yes um sort of instituted by michael faraday yeah. um a, a totally a legendary thing in, in terms of in terms of science and how did that come about um they've just you can watch them now on i believe yeah. you can you can now go online and watch them um you can indeed go online and watch them i've just seen we'll put a link in the show yeah. notes to, to for people to do it do that so <laughs> you will see how i looked when i was 25 years younger than I am now, which is the most frightening thing of all. Oh, God. In fact, it struck me it's 25 years ago this year that I gave those lectures. Um, I was invited to give them, it was during the summer of that year, and so I only had three or four months to prepare them. And Bryson Gore, who was the assistant at the Royal Institution, was wonderful. And I quickly realised that this was a man who could come up with demonstrations that were were wonderful. And so I thought we can do this two ways. One is I can decide what I want to do and see if Bryson can come up with something. But what ideas does he have for things that are great demos? And then could we do it from that end in? Mm. And so he said, oh, what they always like is doing an explosion in the hand. So this is electrolyzing uh, water uh, to separate it into hydrogen and oxygen. And then with a tube, uh, one of the gases is bubbled in. You put some some soap some soap solution okay in your in your your hands liquid uh, liquid shampoos in your hand and so the gas bubbles come under the soap so you've got all these bubbles in there and then he takes a match and lights it and he goes bang and it's tremendously dramatic but of course it's in your hand which is open to the air so you don't feel anything at all but in the audience it looks very impressive and i'm sorry i gave the secret away but anyway, <laughs> uh, so th- things like that so yeah. we did that to uh, you know illustrating the elements and so forth um so the 
gradually the ideas were developed. William Woolard, who was the, the director, was absolutely marvellous. And I learned a huge amount from him. I, I learned as much from William about presenting on right. the stage as I ever did from Tim Radford about, about writing. So those are the two people probably who uh, unwittingly helped me along. Um, and uh, then we come up before Christmas and there were going to be five lectures in those days. Um, and so each lecture, the, the sequence was given that on day one, you would come in and you would do a sort of working through what it was going to be and what the props were going to be and so forth in the morning. In the afternoon, you'd have a sort of slow go through to see if it all works. Okay. The next day, in the morning, you would have the dress rehearsal and in the afternoon, you'd have the actual presentation which was filmed live. Uh, well, yeah, absolutely. And what people probably don't realise is that what you see is what you get. Well, I, this was my question. Is it, it, it? There was no chance to... You, you're in front of a live audience. They're filming it. There's no... It's got to all work like clockwork. Yeah. Like, wow. I mean, if something terrible went wrong... Of course. Uh, and afterwards, they do do a few little shots of uh, you holding things with close-ups rather than afterwards. But then you cut to... And they yeah. cut, cut to that. But the rest of it was all live, live. Um, the most scary thing, however, uh, was that... First, well, there was two things. The first morning when I came in to the, to the RI, walking up Albemarle Street, you know, I've been doing that there for three months. We've been coming in every day. And suddenly I came up the road there and there were these BBC outside broadcast vans. That's how it was all done in those days. BBC outside broadcast vans lined up in Albemarle Street with cables like umbilical cords going up into the windows on the first floor of the Royal Institution all going to go into the theatre so they could pick up all of the cameras and bring it all out there. And I had this panic and I thought, my God, yeah. this is all for me. And that was the moment I realised it was real. Yeah. You know, and I could see how it could have run at, at that, that <laughs> yes. instant. So that, that, that was a scary moment. Um, the other thing, the other one was when we got into the middle about the third one, it was rather strange. Um, so I, I've given the first lecture and it's gone sort of fine. There was... Well, when you watch them, I'll tell you what went wrong. <laughs> okay. Great. Um, so the whole series starts with uh, me walking in through a picture of the Big Bang um, to a sort of explosion. And, there's, a uh, lot, there's a lot of dry ice. And there? a lot of dry ice. <laughs> okay. Now, we, the, we, had, we, organized, we did this in the dress rehearsal. It was absolutely perfectly wonderful. This dry ice was there, and it clears instantly, and I walk in like that. That is what happens in an empty theatre. When you've got a theatre full of 500 people, each putting out 150 watts, that is not what happens. The Big Bang <laughs> hangs around. <laughs> like a bad smell. Uh, and that, that was the great tragedy of it, which was that uh, the, they only review the first... In the newspapers, they only review the first lecture. And somebody made a sort of... Some junior reporter probably made their career making some sort of snotty remark about this. And then they started making rather downbeat remarks about the props. And I thought, you know, that is totally unfair. Yeah. The people at the RI had a budget, maybe about £1,000. And out of that, with styrofoam and Bakelite and this, that and the other, had come up with some wonderfully creative things. I mean, today, when you, you see television science... You've got computerised gizwazzers, digital effects, mm -hmm. who knows what. Mm -hmm. But 
Back then, that was yeah. all handmade on a shoestring budget. There was no green screen where someone's no. doing, knowing that there's going to be some kind of fantastic. <laughs> like, what, what's a green screen? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so that that was uh, that, that was fun. Um, no, it was before the third lecture. So I, I've given the first two lectures; they've gone fine. Um, and we're now doing it the third time. And I was sitting in the room watching the the audience coming in. And so, is this on the same day? No, no. sorry. So uh, the five lectures. I think three of them were recorded over a period of a week. Okay. So, like, because this, each lecture, if if you like, takes two days: preparation, dress rehearsal, lecture. Wow. Then preparation, yeah, lecture, yeah. rehearsal, and, diff- so. and different audience each time. Uh, in principle, yes, there was a very strong overlap. Okay. Okay, um, but it, it was a different audience each time. Otherwise, um, so after three lectures, I'm sitting in the room waiting and watching these people coming in, and it may have been because. You know, the first two lectures, you've got the adrenaline really excited going and you're in the middle and you haven't yet got to that final one where you can sort of go, hey, we've, we've done it. Um, and I suddenly had a very sinking sense, almost of depression, wondering why are all these people coming to see me? You know, it was like imposter syndrome. So yeah, you, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's all wrong. You know, and I think I, and I thought, well, at least I'm giving a different lecture each time. And I think in that moment, I understood how it is that entertainers, I mean, like Tony Hancock, and uh, who committed suicide and, and so forth, um, I could see how they can get depressed, especially if you're doing a comedy routine. You know, you're making other people's life great by making them laugh every night. And you go out there on stage every night doing the same routine, different audience, same routine, make everybody else happy. Who does it for you? Yeah. Um, and there must be some questioning in oneself, you know, even these greatest yeah, comedians yeah. who we all see from the outside, oh, you're great. Inside, are they asking themselves, who am I? What yeah. am I doing this for? Um, so that was quite a profound moment, which thankfully um, I got through because the moment, you know, you walk out onto stage, I'm sure it is the same for professional actors. Yes. This is how they feel when they're in the changing room beforehand. Yes. When you're out there, it's as if somebody does that and yeah. you're on. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you get the buzz of the audience reacting. Yes. Well, it is very important, I think, for the audience to let the actor or whoever know that they're getting it. Yeah, and, you, and as you yeah. said yourself, um, that, that, that you, you can understand why people say it's, you've been a great audience, because mm. that makes perfect mm. sense. Yes. I'm going I'm to just zoom in very quickly there on that, the, the, the journalist who, who sort of, you know, latched on to, you know, unfairly onto the, the things, because... This is sort of a wider a question. In the podcast, we're all, we're, we often explore this concept of science capital, this idea that society has a sort of a base level, if you like, of understanding of science, and that in everything that you do, this was really why I was, why I was trying to, to say that you, you're the sort of daddy of science communication, because that idea of, of, of hooking, putting your hooks into people and in- inspiring them and motivating them and connecting with them and opening a door into science and letting them know that they can, you know, they can understand this stuff. Um, is that anything that you've really thought about in terms of, in terms of how you see, whether it's a journalist who doesn't really get what you're trying to do with something or whether it's your responsibility as someone who works within science, understands science and has a talent for communicating this to other people? If there are criticisms of what you do, it is always wise to at least ask yourself why they're there, because you can learn something. I mean, it's up to you to decide whether you think the criticism is unfair or not. Mm. But the person has made it, so they've obviously felt that. 
um, you, you always have to decide have they felt that because that was the particular angle they were coming from whatever you had done mm-hmm. um, or is there something to learn um, do you ever come across to, 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 for, for, for want of a better word ignorance where you've done something and, then, and, and that ignorance stems from a, f- a fundamental missing piece in terms of how they understand science I suppose I probably have but not something that really strikes me I think the people who go out to a lecture, by and large, go because they want to be there for yeah. whatever reason. Um, I have, I remember many years ago, um, I was warned before a lecture that there was somebody who was likely going to be in the audience who uh, was there with their own agenda, and you could almost see who they were straight off. The, sort of Rowan Atkinson looking character wearing an old Mac who came in and sat in the front row was nodding all the time and then at the at, thankfully waited till the end of the lecture to stand up and made some long statement about the second coming and, and at the end of it uh, the, the chairman said there's a question you're supposed to ask a question you're supposed to ask a question oh yes well then uh, what do you feel about the second coming <laughs> and so I said I was still coming to terms with the first and we moved on you know. um, so occasionally you do have that sort of thing because I mean the subject I mean, my subject particle physics which for 2000 years was trying to find what stuff is made of but yeah. since the 1970s and my area has been much more where did it all come from yeah. the big question of origins is what's behind cosmology and all human cultures in fact that was the theme we used in the Cosmic Onion Christmas lectures was sort of going back like archaeologists digging deeper and finding out origins Um, so this big question of where did it all come from what's it all about then Um, that attracts people who are attracted for intellectual curiosity reasons from science what have you Um, but there are those who think that somehow you're going to provide the answer Ah, right and that again is probably a, a that's something in modern society where we we seem to be having a lot less tolerance of ambiguity. You know, whether it's our kids saying, "I want to know which which subjects to study to pass," right. and things. It's that sort of. Uh, maybe this is I'm conflating two very different things. Well, maybe maybe not. I, I was just thinking while you're saying that. I mean, I, I'm not in an area like at the present time where I'm actually going to go on a stage and there's going to be people sort of saying, "I demand a safe space. You can't use those words to describe me." Blah yeah, blah blah. Yeah. Um, but uh, maybe 30 years ago, uh, when questions about nuclear proliferation were much higher on people's cultural awareness, perhaps, than they are now, um, you know, I would have people, uh, I'm talking about particle physics, a completely peaceful enterprise where you're using bits of atoms to try to understand the nature of the universe. But they saw you as being part of the sort of military industrial... For example, in, okay, yes, yeah. okay. Um, which is fine, Um as long as they don't try to hijack your event. Stories from science. Going back to that idea of the beginnings and origins and the big questions, you were head of, was it science communication at CERN? Yes, yeah, so my career roughly, um, after doing my PhD at Oxford, I went to Stanford in California for two years which were probably the best two years of our life because we had a VW bug and long hair and it was blue skies and flower power and anti-Vietnam wow. war and everything else like that. <laughs> and we did a bit of physics as well <laughs> in perhaps the most exciting laboratory there was to be at at that time. That time yeah. 
Um, I spent a year at Darsbury in Northern England and then went to CERN for two years. And then I went to Rutherford Lab um, next to Harwell, um, initially as a research associate and as a staff member. And I was there for 25 years. Eventually, I was head of the theoretical physics division there. I spent a couple of years away uh, in the States, in Knoxville, Tennessee, uh, Oak Ridge National Lab. Okay. Um, and three years, 97 to 2000, what you're referring to, I was um, in charge of communications at CERN. Um, that actually, and it was after that that I came to, to Oxford, but that actually was sort of interesting because um, I had for quite a while been interested, not just, I mean, I had been doing science communication in the UK primarily in an era when it was not yet popular. I mean, mm, I, I think yeah. that... Uh, um, the the modern popularity, certainly for physical sciences, that Brian Cox in particular and Jim Al Khalili have have brought to fruit, probably goes back. Uh, actually, you know, I think it is Brian Cox's career as a musician, ironically, um, back in '97. D-Ream had that great uh, yeah, hit, yeah. Uh, Things, Things Gonna, gonna get, get Better, which was used by the Labour Party, party uh, who were then newly elected. And it was their government that suddenly recognised the cultural significance and interest and the relevance probably for industry and all whatever else. But there was a huge um, thrust for science that grew right. uh, in that era. Um, which we are still 20 years later uh, getting the benefit of. Um, Before that, um, it was changing, but back in the 80s, um, I think it was very different. I I was full-time a research physicist at Rutherford Lab, and I was doing this writing and popularisation, if you like, on the side. I was strongly encouraged in that, not least because it was good PR. I mean, this was a time when the questions were even being asked whether Britain should continue to be a member of CERN. The costs, what, what, there used to be, wow. there used to be a small particle accelerator at Rutherford Lab, uh, and also one up at Darsbury in the yeah. north. And by mid-70s, the costs, they closed the one at Darsbury, and the British effort was all focused on Rutherford Lab. By the end of the 70s, the cost was such they closed one at the Rutherford Lab and everything was being focused on CERN. And uh, there was a lot of questions being asked about whether Britain... Were we, were we getting benefit from CERN? What was it all about, etc., etc.? And so John Kendrew um, chaired a committee that looked into the future of Britain in CERN. And um, he had a science advisor, Chris Lillian-Smith from St John's College in Oxford, and Chris later became the Director General of CERN, but this is way before that. And Chris knew me and I knew him uh, from a long time and he knew my Cosmic Onion book. So the Kendrew Committee used my Cosmic Onion book to brief themselves. I mean, his committee was industrialists, astronomers, biologists, I mean, all, all right across the scientific spectrum and industrial spectrum as well. So they weren't particle physicists, that was the main point. So the Cosmic Onion was used by them to to brief themselves. Um, and Kendrew was actually very nice. He was very impressed with that. And he then invited me to join what's called the International Council of Scientific Unions. Kendrew was wanting to create a means where scientists, if you like, could get away from Robert Maxwell, um, that we could publish our own stuff yeah. for ourselves without paying vast fortunes into private publishing. 
Um, so that was good for me, um, but it sort of sets up the cosmic onion, if you like, as a quote official, unquote, yeah, yeah, yeah. primer into particle physics. And although I didn't realise it perhaps at the time, the, the support I was getting for this stuff uh, was not just let me do it for myself, but the field needed it. So there was a serious danger, we now realise, that the UK could have quit CERN. I mean, that's, that's, when you think about what's happened in the recent years, it's, it's almost unthinkable, but, but, it was a, but it was a real possibility. It was a real possibility, and it's only at this moment I just thought, suppose that Britain had quit CERN. Tim Berners-Lee wouldn't have been working there, would he? No. Of course, I mean, you know, who knows what might have happened, but yeah. the world would certainly be very different. Be very, very different. Um, I mean... Uh, that's, that's incredible. That is absolutely incredible. Anyway, we stayed in. Okay, yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> uh, we, we stayed in. Um, and by the 1990s, Chris Lillian-Smith then became the Director General at CERN. And, I mean, he and I had talked quite a bit over the years about uh, the political reasons for public awareness. Um, and I had sort of become aware that, much as I enjoyed doing what I was doing, um, I was all the time, if you like, having to come up... With, you, you can't say the same thing over and over again. Mm. You've got to come up with new ways of presenting things, new approaches. And I was having to keep creating these things. And I thought, there must be people around here. I mean, there's people in Spain don't read what I'm doing. You know, the, and indeed, there's Alvaro de Rujula in Spain, for example, is doing this, like Etienne Klein in France and the like. And I thought, can we not get these people together somehow? in order to share experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so I talked to Chris about the idea of having a European network. So CERN is a collection of European nations doing research in physics together at the laboratory. How about having a network of European scientists who are interested in popularising that can meet and, and share ideas? Yeah. Um, and so that is how the European Particle Physics Outreach Group began. Um, and I went across to CERN uh, in Chris's first year in '97 to yeah. set that thing up and get it started. Uh, and then I was asked to stay at CERN and run their scientific communications and exhibitions and press office anyway. Um, and while I was there, um, it was the time when the decision to go full stream ahead with the Large Hadron Collider had been yeah. taken with a view eventually, hopefully, to discovering the Higgs boson which was indeed found in 2012, but we're talking about 97, oh, yeah, 20 years yeah, before yeah. that. Um, and I thought, well, what's the Higgs boson all about? This is the big deal question. And uh, how many people know? And how can you explain it? There had been one occasion, I should just back up slightly. I spent quite a bit of time with the British Association. I was um, vice president there for a few years. And I was responsible on their executive of working with one of their people, Brian Gamble, and setting up what's now science, National Science Week. Okay. So the National Science Week, uh, it was Brian Gamble who did all the... the this is the British Association of Science. The British yeah, Association yeah, yeah, of yeah. Science. So Brian Gamble and I were responsible for setting up Science Week. And those are the days when William Waldegrave was the mm -hmm. science minister. Um, now, when... So one would meet Waldegrave regularly, but of course, no, he would meet the, the president of the BA that year and so on. And I thought, look, Walder Graves' private secretary is always with him, and uh, he has nothing to do. And the two of them are in the car together afterwards. So I got to know his private secretary very well and talked to him. And mm. basically, I talked to the private secretary a lot, and 
he would obviously then talk to Waldegrave afterwards. That was very successful. I indeed invited the private secretary to my Christmas lectures as well, <laughs> which he came along with one of his children. But Waldegrave then was unusual in, as a science minister in being intellectually curious in a very genuine way. And he put a challenge out to the scientific community to say, look, um, I could make better arguments in support of your efforts to discover the Higgs boson at CERN if you can help me. And and he made this challenge about, uh, can you explain the ideas of the Higgs boson on a single sheet of A4? Mm. Um, And he would present a bottle of wine or whatever it was as a surprise. Now, I didn't win that, I'll say that straight out. Um, I sent, my, my response was, being asked to... Uh, explain profound concepts on a single sheet of A4, you know, is, uh, I can't remember what the analogy I, I, I drew. Uh, it's a bit, it reminds me of Feynman being asked when he won his Nobel Prize, and uh, now could you tell me what your Nobel Prize was all about in less than 30 seconds? <laughs> and Feynman said, if I could do it in less than 30 seconds, it wouldn't have been worth a Nobel Prize. It was a bit like that. Yeah. So I said, I, same thing. I said, however, I noticed that you didn't specify a font size. So I could as small as possible with many words. However, I am prepared to uh, f- take on your challenge if in return you will do the same for me on behalf of the Maastricht Treaty. Because at that time, the whole Maastricht Treaty yeah, was up yeah, and yeah. nobody knew what it meant or what it was all about. And if you can explain the Maastricht Treaty on a sheet of A4, I'll explain <laughs> the exposure on a sheet of A4. And uh, to, be, to be fair, I mean, William Waldegrave was a great man and he much later said to me, we both failed each other's challenge <laughs> or some, some words yeah. like, like that. Um, but, but that was the, the nature of the, of the game. So now I'm at CERN in 97, and I thought, look, the idea that was the winner uh, was a little cartoon sequence that uh, they created of um, Margaret Thatcher coming to a... There's a room full of party workers. That was the Higgs field. And Margaret Thatcher appears through the door, and immediately some of these workers cluster around her. So it's hard for her to go through the room because they're all clustering around her. So this was like the Higgs field giving resistance, inertia, mass to particles as they come through. Um, and then an analogy for the Higgs boson, which is like a wave in this field, uh, is uh, that a rumour comes to the door and the people cluster around the door and they hear the rumour. Maybe the lead has been thrown out and they turn around and pass the rumour on. You see this coming through the room. Now... I thought, well, it'd be great to be able to do something, maybe along these lines or maybe better, in the CERN exhibition. After all, if the CERN exhibition can't do this, you know, yeah. we are some. Now, I did find something. Um, there is a very dramatic representation of the Higgs boson propagating through, the rumour propagating through, which, regrettably, you will never be able to see. <laughs> Because it, well, what it is... Performance, almost. No, no, no. It it is actually very serious. When J.F. Kennedy was shot, where was he going? He was going to... I don't know. He was on his way to lunch. And there, I once saw a film uh, in this huge stadium, this huge, like, gymnasium, all these people waiting for the president to arrive. And the news arrives that the president's been shot. And you see this Higgs boson effect, the, the, the clusters, there's people propagating through. Yeah, yeah, you know. yeah. So you'd never be able to use that for reality, but I thought, you know, the, yeah. maybe one think that there must be ways of uh, yeah, doing this. So uh, I then became interested in how can we explain the Higgs boson and, and so on. And um, that is what led to me writing a book 
called Lucifer's Legacy, mm. which was all about symmetry and asymmetry. And, you know, why are there more right-handers than left-handers? Why, are, why is the heart more on the left side than the right side? Why does the left testicle hang lower than the right? And so forth. Um, and it's all linked to the Higgs boson. <laughs> <laughs> Stories from science. 40 years ago when I started doing this, I was doing it for fun. I was doing it because I enjoyed doing it and I was doing it because it was a way for me to understand better what it was I was doing mm. so that I could then explain it to other people. So in that sense, it was a selfish endeavour. Um, and I have always, what I've done ever since has been, when I'm writing books, I've gone on an adventure or a research journey to find out something for myself and then written about it so that the reader then experiences my own sort of discovery. Mm-hmm. Um, however, it is has become increasingly clear that everybody now has a, a professor of public understanding in their university. Yeah. And while I recognise the reasons for this in the real world, um, I have a slight cynicism about some of it. Um, that, I mean, looking back, the amount of support that I was getting back in the 80s wasn't philanthropic, philanthropic is not the right word, but I mean, there, there, was, uh, there was clearly uh, an interest in the community to have the work presented so that it would be treated favourably. Mm. I mean, that, that's, that's the nature of the real world. And what was clear at CERN in, in 2000 when we were setting up this network of physicists is that I think what differentiated or differentiates the particle physics PR, let's say, from NASA is that, well, first of all, NASA's funded much, much, much more, but um, in, in the case of NASA, it is a corporate endeavour that is funded f- within the organisation as a whole. In the particle physics case, it is the professional particle physicists who are doing it. And that was one of the things that we felt um, back in Chris William Smith's time and his successor, Luis, Luciano Miani, as DG, that we have to be trusted and if the professional scientists are doing the outreach mm. then there will be a level of trust which is different than if some PR company is doing it right um, there's a sort of credibility yes yeah, yeah. so t- to my mind it is, there is a sort of win-win there that on the one hand in the real world you know, it costs money to do research and blue skies research it's not immediately clear where the financial payoff will be. So that has to be funded through the tax base. It has to be supported, otherwise it won't be through the tax base. And therefore, you have got to uh, make sure that the, the taxpayers have at least some, not necessarily understanding of what you're doing, but at least an appreciation that it is worthwhile. Yeah. And if you get a PR company to do that, you know, you, you can t- we, we can all tell sometimes when you're being sold a pup or not, okay? Um, so on that sense, having the physicists do it is a good thing. But the reason I think it is a good thing really is because in order to do effective outreach, it is not easy. That it is really a challenge at the personal level that 
unless I understand clearly what it is that I am doing, I'm not going to be able to tell you, explain to you, let alone enthuse you. Yeah. Because if I don't understand it, how can you possibly understand enough to say, aha? So it's a big challenge for me to say, what really is the important nub of what I'm doing? I mean, uh, is, it, is it important I tell you all about renormalization theory? Probably not. But uh, if I tell you about, uh, if I do the calculation and I get infinity, you know that it's wrong. So you can say something in different ways. Yeah. So all yeah. the time yeah. you are yourself becoming a bit sharper and clearer in what you're doing. So just to back up slightly then, so if, if we're looking, so there is almost a way of separating this out between the sort of more cynical PR of, of, of science, which is always the suspicion of the, your, your prof- you know, of, of, of every university having a sort of professor of sort of science communication or whatever. And then there's a sort of a science communication as a tool to not only get science out there, but also improve. There's an argument that by doing science communication, you make yourself a better scientist because all of us as people involved in science almost have a bit of a duty. I'm sure. I'm sure that's the case. That's a really, that's an incredibly positive way of looking at it. For example, I mean, so Jim Al-Khalili, who does a lot of stuff on the radio and the TV and Mm. so on, he was trained as a nuclear physicist and his entree was in nuclear physics but the range of things that he has now been doing like um, on quantum mechanics well that's one of the tools that he would use in yeah. his subject artificial intelligence is his latest thing so this is an example of how um, as an individual whose expertise in communicating your particular speciality yeah. is recognised then people want to use that expertise you have to help them understand a wider base and as a result of that you know Jim is now becoming an expert in artificial intelligence now he may have done that anyway yes. I don't know yeah. but it's the sort of thing that, that sort of makes you spread your wings a bit yeah. so there's, there's that good thing and, and, and also because he's someone who is so fat grounded and schooled in and expert in, in, in almost critical thinking within complex areas there's a certain credibility that comes so so if someone turns around and says well why are you commenting on ai you're not an expert well actually i am because of this journey that i've been on and my desire to communicate it and challenge sloppy thinking which of course jim is very wanted to if he sees it in press yeah i mean this is actually where where the difficulties then can arise and this is where different people's personalities uh I have always been reluctant to go outside the narrow area. Mm. Um, I mean, that, that's a strength or a weakness. I don't know <laughs> how it plays. Um, because I've always wanted... If somebody comes around and says, well, you don't know what you're talking about, I want to say, well, actually, I do. I've only told you 10% of what I know. Yeah. Um, if somebody is telling me 10% of what they know, then I trust what I'm being told. If they're telling me 90% of what they know, maybe I trust what I'm being told. Sometimes I have the impression I'm being told 110% of what they know. And it's intuitive somehow you can tell. I don't know, there's not an algorithm, but you can sort of tell tell it. What advice would you give someone 
who who wanted to get into in, 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 into some some of these areas, maybe sort of particle physics or or, or, or I mean above and beyond the work hard, <laughs> study hard. Mm. And the other thing was, would you do the same again? Is there a different area of, of, of right. science that you might pursue knowing what you know now? Well, let me answer the first one first. That um, you have to be curious. You have to want to do it. If you're really interested in something, it's not hard work. If it's hard work, you're not interested. It's worth it. Um, don't necessarily make a decision early on that you want to be a particle physicist or what have mm. you. Um, I mean, within physics, which is the only area that I'm really qualified to talk about, I often get requests from people say, I'm, you know, I'm at high school and I want to become a particle physicist. What university should I go to? To which the answer is, there is one basic physics that we all have to learn. I mean, whichever university you go to in years one and two, you, everybody... There is one classical mechanics and they teach it the same at Yale as they do at Birmingham as they do in Beijing. So, um, by the time you get to your final year and you start doing special topics, then that may become more dependent upon which university you are at. But there's two things. One, you don't have to go to a university that does research in particle physics in order to become a particle physicist. Mm. I was an undergraduate at St Andrews. There's no particle physics at St Andrews. I went to Oxford University to do my PhD as a particle physicist. So that's the first thing. But the second thing is, don't think that because you're interested in particle physics, you'll become a particle physicist. Because at university, you will be exposed to areas of physics perhaps you didn't even know existed. Yeah. Um, so keeping an open mind. Exactly. But, I mean, but, you know, superconductivity, complexity quantum cryptography, areas of physics that probably didn't exist when I was younger and so on. So uh, you know, it's got to be hard work, that's absolutely clear. Uh, as Edison said, it's 99% perspiration and only 1% inspiration. Uh, there's no shortcuts on that, but as I said, if you're interested, it will always be worth it. The end result is worth it, but don't necessarily think too soon that, oh, I'm going to be that type of physicist or the other type of physicist. There's a lot of physics out there and you might discover some things that are even more interesting than what you set out to think. What would I do if I was starting out today knowing what I know now, so to speak? <laughs> I don't think I would become a particle physicist. Um, simply because... No. First of all, I was very lucky, though I didn't realise at the time, the period when I entered particle physics was when a revolution was just beginning and I was fortunate that I happened to be working on part of that revolution even before people knew it was going to be a revolution. You, you, can't, you can't plan that, okay? That, 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 that's the fortune part of things. Um, and then I, so I've seen the birth of the standard model. If you like, the 50-year saga to the discovery of the Higgs boson, I have lived through much of that. And that in part is why I've perhaps become recently a historian of science because I sort of thought, well, I'll write about the Higgs boson from my historical because experience of how it all evolved. Because this story needs to be told. This, yes, someone, needs to be, right. someone needs to be a witness yes. to, to, to everything that was going on. Yeah. yeah, so that's what the theme of the infinity puzzle was. Yeah. Um, 
but of course I didn't know back then that it was going to be like that. Um, why wouldn't I do that today? Well, three reasons. One, I suppose, perhaps in part because I've already done it, so yeah. that's it. Um, I wish I was as optimistic that string theory... Everybody's doing string theory. I would probably recommend, please don't do string theory, <laughs> because if you do, you'll be working with a thousand other people on a theory which actually somebody else began. Um, it would be nice to say discover something yourself and set up the new thing but you can't plan that no. um, there's one third thing is there's a manifest difference today compared with my time when I was a student they delivered the mail once a day and once you'd read it that was it all you got to do was to do your work and when it got tough you just had to keep hitting your head against the wall till the wall fell down or your head fell in today you go to your email there's any number of diversions. So I don't know whether it is possible to imagine somebody like Andrew Wiles spending years on one problem today with all these diversions that are. Yeah. On the other hand, in the past, it was uh, certainly not as democratic as it is now. You know, as I said, I was not at St. Andrew, uh, at St. Andrews, there wasn't particle physics. So I had to go to Oxford. Thankfully, I did. Um, so if you were in the right place, you could work with good people. If you weren't, you couldn't. Now with the internet, you can, in principle, collaborate with people anywhere. Yeah. Um, so the, the, the human contact part of it, the thinking aloud over coffee, is very important. Um, so what would I do? I think what fascinates me more and more is how we're having this conversation. Uh, having spent you know, several decades working on particles. You know, every electron is the same, every proton is the same. Yet somehow, if you put enough of them together, they think they're you. And the more I think about that, the more bizarre it sounds, <laughs> but the truer it is. In fact, that's not my original idea, it was Bill Bryson, who in um, was it A Brief History of Almost Everything, says, you know, there's these atoms whizzing around, and for about a century, they're organised in such a way that is self-aware and then they go off and do other things. So the question is, what is the minimum number of atoms that are needed for them to know that they are there? Which I suppose begins to touch on the question of, is consciousness just an organisation of a set of molecules in some particular configuration, or is there something else? Yeah. And... Actually, I would say, although I'm not a, although I'm a humanist myself, I would say, actually, I could regard it as an open question. Um, what they call quotes, soul, unquotes. Um, that uh, it may be that just atoms in a particular configuration is all that it is. Or it might not be. And I don't think we experimentally know. So there is an open question as to whether atoms in a configuration alone is sufficient to make consciousness or whether there is some further effect influence field call it what you yeah, will yeah, yeah, okay yeah, yeah. that somehow when there's enough of them there is able to come in yeah. and then goes out <laughs> with a knot um i mean wouldn't it be bizarre if when we finally cash our chips in we woke up on the other side and discovered that uh, these people who believe that there's multiple lives were right you know <laughs> <laughs> Uh, except apparently you wouldn't know about it. No. So I think what I'd be interested in more is um, the interface of biology and physics, um, the nature of consciousness. If only I could 
think of some questions that are answerable. Because I think the key to research, it is easy to ask trivial questions whose answers are obvious and nobody's interested in them. The converse is that it is also easy to ask impossible questions to answer, in which case you will never answer them. The key to effective research is to be able to find the questions which are profound enough and yet tractable. So actually, I think the most important thing in being a research scientist, perhaps of any ilk, is to be able to ask the right questions. Answering them tends to be easier than finding the right questions in the first place. Wow. That's a very profound <laughs> place to end the interview. Um, it's, been a, 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 it's been a fantastic uh, conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And maybe... Uh, for someone listening out there, consciousness is the is is going to be the Higgs boson story, and someone out there is uh, is ready to to be the witness for the for our understanding of consciousness. We'll we'll leave that one there, Professor Frank Close. Thank you very much. Thank you. Hi everyone, this is Mark, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Just a couple more things before we end the podcast. You can find show notes, links and other interesting bits and bobs from today's show at www.storiesfromscience.co.uk or just Google Stories from Science. If you enjoyed this and any other episode, then please consider subscribing and leaving a review. Every review helps us to learn and improve and spread the stories we uncover to a wider audience. And it only takes a moment. Thanks for listening and being part of the Stories from Science community. Until next time, goodbye. Stories from Science.